Welcome to Crump Insights, exploring timely life insurance and retirement planning topics for today's forward-thinking financial professionals. In this episode, we'll discuss electronic health records, or EHR. I'm Brian Bushlack, your host for this series and an active life and health insurance producer. Leading our discussion, Chris Cook, Senior Vice President and Head of Underwriting at Crump. Our guest, Carolyn McEvin, Director, Underwriting Innovations. Carolyn, exciting times in our industry. A lot of innovation going on. And, you know, one of the things or the key thing that we're here to talk about today is the innovation of electronic health records. You know, the big buzz phrase in the industry today. From your perspective, you know, not wanting to make any assumptions for our audience, can you just give a definition of what electronic health records are uh, versus electronic medical records and how they're being utilized in the industry today? Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Always good to be back with my Crump friends. So I think that the acronyms, and we're chock full of acronyms, even in the electronic health record space, we'll hear EMR and we'll hear EHR. And I do think they get used interchangeably. But really, an EMR, think of it more as a specific record at a specific provider that doesn't necessarily move around with you. Um, The electronic health record is more of a solution, so to speak, in that it's really connecting providers together in with the goal of preserving patient safety, patient treatment options. It helps with the billing process. So think of it as if your PCP is at, at one facility, say Mass General here in Boston, and your cardiologist is at the Beth Israel here in Boston, those are two separate EMRs where an EHR solution would be more of a historical record that follows a patient or applicant. Does that make sense? It does. From your definition there, one thing that the audience needs to be clear of, these were not created for the life insurance industry, correct? Absolutely. (laughs) We're working within the healthcare system world. And I always say, think of when you go to your healthcare provider now and they're they're, um, putting your information into a tablet, that is what we're working with. Like we only have access to what your doctor or nurse practitioner or whomever is recording. So if you're going there just saying you have a backache, that's all we're going to get. You know, we're not going to get a full robust record of everything that um, an underwriter might choose or hope to get if all you went for was one thing and that's all that was recorded. So then think about when you go to the doctor, they don't always take your height and weight. They don't always record if you were a tobacco user. They don't always take your blood pressure. So we're getting what is going into that tablet and where we as life underwriters are working in that world. So then to further expand on that, with these types of requirements being in its infancy, while I definitely see future opportunities, this is a requirement that's really expanding and developing even as we speak, correct? And while the future is here, there's still long-term opportunities for changes and making these more life insurance friendly. Right. To simplify it, they're maturing, right? So we always say, you know, we're in the, um, we're sort of in the second or third inning of a game, just to reuse uh, baseball analogies. But really, that's where we are. And I'm seeing it, the more I look at records, the more robust and APS-like they're getting. 
But the really important thing I think what people don't realize is in the APS world, we're going after a specific provider. We're very surgical, right? I'm going after Dr. Smith at in Boston, Mass, and I'm getting those records. EHRs work a little differently and they're patient-centric. So I'll put in information about Chris Cook and I may get, I'll get whatever is available from the data sources we're contracted with. So I might get your PCP. I might get your cardiologist. I might just get one. The benefit of that is that I might get something that you chose not to disclose, right? Because it's more a either a proximity search or a network search versus a precise provider search. So that's very new to people that haven't played in the space yet. It's almost like we're opening up a Pandora's box, depending on the scenario, right. correct? Right. So in some use cases, and, and you'll you'll hear people that work in the space use that term frequently, use case. For the most part, people are looking at this tool as an APS replacement, right? Or they at least start that way or they'll pilot that way. We encourage people to think a little bit larger than that in terms of anywhere you're using data, this could be a fit. It's a quick response time. We get 72% back within 24 hours. We get 18% back within five minutes. It's a fairly inexpensive product compared to an APS. Right now we're at $30. So it's a great way if you're vetting maybe somebody new to your space that you don't really know anything about, you don't know their disclosure history, you have some other tools like an RX or something on your, in your case, your time saver application that you're like, I'm just not really sure how far I want to go with this or how much I want to spend on this. It's a quick, inexpensive tool. So everybody wants it to look and feel like an APS and they're using it as a replacement, but it's really its own unique piece of data. And it really needs to be thought about a little differently. Agree 100%. And, you know, as we at Crump have started our relationship from a vendor perspective with, with MIB, we're certainly understanding that, you know, much better now. And, and we mm-hmm. certainly appreciate the opportunity for being your first uh, distribution partner. So what methods of electronic health records, how do we get them? You know, what can you speak to, you know, how they're obtained when we go out and, and ask them? What's the process? So we have two methods. Um, most people start with our user interface, like a portal, not a patient portal, but just a portal that you could provide a client's demographic information and then in the HIPAA authorization form. And we, you will go through MIB and we will hit various data sources. Some of them are HIEs, which are health information exchanges. They are typically at a state or regional level, such as Utah, Arizona. We have one in New York. We have one that's regional, which is the Midwest Health Connector. And what that does is it goes into those regions and it seeks, again, Chris Cook, and if there's information at the state or regional level that they've gathered. We also go to what's considered more of a traditional EMR, electronic medical record data source, such as an Epic, a Cerner, a paradigm, and they think of those as more of Mass General has an EPIC facility. So the hospitals or the ambulatory centers within their system use one or other. Typically, they don't use two. So we'll go after the systems, the health systems, or we'll go after the regional 
facilities to go after data. So they're all created a little bit differently. So where APS services are more similar and they're all, you know, copy services or they go out in, into their exchanges, this is going after every different data source or different types of data sources. They're all architected a little bit differently. So we take care of that connection. It's one connection to MIB and then we go after the various data sources and bring back the record. Right now, we are returning records about 34% of the time. So if you think of, if you give us 100 searches, a third of the time, we'll find a record for you. That's where the industry's at. And it's really doubled in the last year. So a lot of people will say, well, that's really not good enough. We want it to be higher. If, if you watch the trajectory of growth, you know, we were at 0% in 2019 and we're already at 34%. That's awesome. So to your comment that they're all created differently, to expand on that a little further, are then they all not equal? I mean, are, are there certain providers that because of the data and its format or the quality that you don't work with? They are all a little bit differently. They are all architected a little differently. For example, we have an API call to most of them. One of them is still a batch process. So like the quickest we'll ever get that is four hours because that's just where their technology is. So it's sort of interesting. Like in early days, we would go out and say, you got data, we'll take it. And now we're much more particular about that. We look at you know how quickly we can get the data. We look at the quality of the data. We look at the security standards that the data source has. Just because they have it doesn't mean it makes sense for us to go after it. So we're doing a better job vetting it. Sometimes the HIEs, the, the health information exchanges, I think get a bad rap. So people will think that their data isn't as good or isn't as robust. But what I'm finding is that you sort of can anticipate what you're going to get from them. A lot of times they'll have vitals. A lot of times they'll have tobacco information. A lot of times they have that that information we need. A lot of times they'll have what I think is sort of replaces what a paramed does in terms of get the list of health concerns or health problems a client has. So if you could even replace it with that, that's good information. Some of them have a better reputation just because their look and feel is prettier. It might be color-coded. It might contain hyperlinks. But quite honestly, that data is more expensive for us to get. So sometimes they aren't necessarily all funded the same. Some are, as, especially if they're a state-run or a regional run, they might not have as much funding so they, that their look and feel is a little less pretty, so to speak. But all we want is the data. All we want is the content as underwriters. We need to get to what that impairment history really looks like. One of our objectives this year at MIB is not only increasing our release rate to 50%. That's one goal. Another is to take all those different looks from the different data sources and have an MIB standard look. So you won't even care where they come from. You know, you shouldn't have to care. You should only care about the classes of information that come through. That's awesome to hear. And when you say release rate, just for the audience, I just, Mm -hmm. for the audience, I I just want to make sure that everyone understands that release rate, hit rate, conversion rate, they're they're all meaning the same thing. It's the actual information on Chris Cook that has been obtained from a search, correct? Right. I think the language is used different by different vendors. So I'll give you how we categorize it. To us, release rate is you searched and you got a record returned. That is a release rate. I stay away from hit rate because I know our member carriers use it differently. For example, some might use it as release rate. 
some might use it as a term for the information returned was su sufficient enough to make a decision without having to pivot to something else. So hit rate is just is super vague. Conversion rate is typically used when for the patient portal, when a client gets an email asking for their credentials into their own provider's healthcare, and they actually provide it. That's typically what conversion rate means. So we use release rate. If you searched, we released a record. I think that's the cleanest solution. You mentioned the patient portal, uh, Carolyn. We've taken the position currently where, you know, path of least resistance, we, we don't like getting the the client, the proposed insured, heavily engaged or engaged at all in the insurance uh, purchasing process, especially on an informal basis. So we've avoided the patient portal approach and, and having them engage. Do you have any direction based on what you're seeing from activity, how successful the patient portal has been from, uh, from your perspective? So we are all about the direct EHR search. That's what we went to market with. We have built a patient portal option and we are treating that as its own unique data source. We are finding that a lot of our members like Crump or Crump as our client is, um, they don't want any friction in the process. So they don't want the clients involved at all. So we have as an option and we built it with the mindset of an accommodation if anybody wants it. We are functional and it's there if somebody wants to increase the release rate, but we don't have a lot of data on that yet. Okay. okay. We also do an APS pivot from our platform. So if we hit the third business day and there's been no EHR returned, we'll pivot to an APS. We're working with release point right now for that. And we are having success with that. Are there areas of the country that are better in terms of release rates Absolutely. Yeah, and can you expand on that a little bit to say you know where your most success is and with what and from whom yeah absolutely great question so we are all about metrics and we watch this really closely we watch it state by state i sort of take if i take the country and put a cross in the middle the release rates are really high in that area when i say really high I would say over 40% for most of them. And we have some fantastic states. North Carolina is a fantastic state. What everybody asks about is California, Texas, and Florida in New York, right? Because that's where the heavy application activity is. I mean, we have a yeah. front-hand view to that at MIB where we, we have a view of 99% of the application activity. So we are all eyes on that. California for the last several months has been north of 30%, which is great. And we have Kaiser data, Southern California Kaiser data. We're still waiting on Northern California for Kaiser. But that really significantly helped the release rates in California. Texas and Florida are a challenge. We're at about 20% for that. So what we're doing, and again, that's it, not an MIB specific choice. It's That's where the data sources are active. So we're getting creative with our approach on those states. And we're going after a health technology company for ACT to help us gain access there. They have built some direct connections with the um, HIEs in those states or with some facilities directly 
So we're not going to get to our 50% goal if we just wait for new providers to be put on these existing systems that we're contracted with. So we're going to go after that with a healthcare partner. That's our strategy. But we're, we're all about that. New York is another important state. And we have HealthX, which is the HIE in um, the southern New York, Manhattan area. So we get some decent coverage in New York, too. I had an interesting conversation with a data source the other day. I said, uh, why is my state so bad? I'm in Massachusetts and with all this healthcare in the Boston area. And he said, I thought this was really interesting. He said, Minnesota, Florida, and Massachusetts are particular challenges, both from a regulatory perspective in releasing information. He said, but he said, it's really interesting that it really depends on who the decision makers in some of the bigger facilities in those states. And for Massachusetts, Partners Health is one of them that's sort of a lot of people follow what Partners Health does. That if it's a compliance person making the decisions versus a clinician or an ops person, that there can be more red tape. So I I thought that was sort of an interesting perspective that it's not necessarily that these providers don't want to give the information. It's just either so much red tape or there's been decisions that no, we, you know, we, we choose not to send data that way. So we certainly try to stay on top of it and we have monthly conversations with all of our data sources to not only understand the market better, but to to push some things that are important to us and our users. The one thing that I've really liked in our relationship is the $30 price point. When you, you know, you you think of some of the APSs in the traditional attending position statement uh, market, uh, depending on the specialty, depending on the size, you know, I've seen, you know, $500 to $1,000 from a cost perspective for for one. The $30 is the $30, which is fantastic. My question is, in terms of the data itself, you know, what we've been seeing utilizing this for the informal process is many times uh, because of the nature of heavily impaired individuals, where we are in, in a maturing opportunity is that we'll have to pivot back to a traditional APS because of the intricacies of the health histories. Right. What are you seeing right now from your perspective in terms of the relevance of the data and the importance to use the specific electronic health records for certain subsets of business? So I think the informal space is a challenge, right? Multi-impaired, you're trying to really be surgical about how you go after that information. So what I encourage people to do, and even on the carrier side, you know, you're in a unique position in distribution where it really matters for you to be quick with the decision, right? And and get everything you need. I think where it's still a little bit of a challenge to be able to price the risk is the extensive cardiac cases or cancer cases and the cases that have, I won't say mild psych, but moderate to severe psych. And your clue would be your RX, right? I assume you're probably getting an RX on some cases, a one med site case, you could certainly use an EHR. There's enough information in there. It's when you're getting into three meds or changing meds that you know some of the sensitive information might be lacking. So if it were my shop, I would be creating rules for the underwriters to say, I would look at the states where the, the release rate is robust, or I would have some sort of pass fail for those states. And then I would look at the impairment. Your table two to table fours, you should be able to do a lot with the EHR. I consistently hear it's the extensive cardiac, the cancers, and the heavy psych. 
those are the ones that maybe you go right to. But I would also say, depending on the premium that you guys are working for, and I'm sure there's probably a threshold of your of, of what you're willing to spend. If you're even questioning if somebody's insurable, $30 within 24 hours probably makes sense, right? So I think it's it's going to be like getting that comfort level and, and seeing, is, is this person even insurable? Exactly right. And that's how we're really approaching it uh, currently, taking the triage approach with a yeah. combination of the electronic health record and the and the prescription uh, database search to, to really understand what makes the most sense uh, from a, a directional perspective on the informal side. Where do you see the next steps, if you will, for electronic health records? You know, again, the, the change has been rapid. Uh, the expansion yeah. has been rapid. From your perspective, what are you seeing as the next great thing related to electronic health records? So in terms of the information coming in to the record, I think we're going to start seeing images. In fact, we are already seeing images coming through from one of our data sources. The challenges with that is it's it's not just the one data source building the architecture to be able to bring it in. Because we built the architecture so that we could support images. But that provider, it, it goes down to the provider level, if you think about it. Dr. Smith has to be able to send it up to, to Veridime, so to speak. And Veridime has to be able to send it up to us. That's, I think, going to be the next thing. If we can get to the point that, you know, we can look at the EKGs, we can look at some of the ultrasound results. And a lot of the interpretations in the ICD-10 codes are already there. So if nothing else, that information is there. But when we can really start, like, getting to see that information, which is coming, that will be interesting. The other thing that I think I started to talk about and got a little bit off track is I want to see members and clients expand their use cases beyond APS. It can be used for claims review. It can be used for, I think it's a there's a great opportunity for an EHR to complement a mortality score. Having used mortality scores in the past, they're great on the tails a lot of times, like a, a good risk versus a, a poor risk. But a lot of them land in the middle where you're sort of like, okay, where am I now? I'm still in the gray. They're a great tool to take that next step from a mortality score. I think it's just a great piece of data to complement any of the other third-party data before you feel the need to go to an APS. Because they're really starting to mirror an APS. In fact, the reason why we know this, not only are we seeing it, but we had a customer, we actually had a data source provider call us and say, the Mayo Clinic's calling us and asking why they're getting three requests for records. And Epix says, I have no idea. And I said, we said, let us call them. Let us talk to them and explain what that means. Because we know exactly what that means. We have somebody looking for life insurance. So they're coming from a carrier for life insurance. Somebody coming from DI. And we had some underwriter that didn't think the EHR was good enough. And they went for an APS request, right? So we said to Mayo... What's going to be the difference between the EHR and the APS request? And they said, nothing. They're just going to get the EHR quicker. It's the same record. And that's from the data source. Like talking to the person in the ROI, which is the return of information sections, think of your APS copy service. So they're really getting to the point that they're, that they're going to contain the information. As long as the technology can pull all those different classes of information, vital smoking status, you know, encounter information, as long as that can be pushed through with the technology, it's going to be there. That's great to hear because what we have experienced in a couple anecdotal situations is the electronic health records that we've requested 
have been 500, 700, almost 1,000 pages, but a lot of redundant data. And it's nice to hear that there will be opportunities for that type of consolidation and focus on future opportunities for data coming through to eliminate that type of redundancy and make it more meaningful. We're working on that. So not only a standardized output, but we're calling it sort of our usability efforts. And one of them is that standardized output. But before that, we're working with a partner and we're in red lines right now about cleaning, cleansing the data, so to speak. So deduping it, enriching it with some ICD-10 codes for those that are trying to automate into, you know, ingest them into automated engines. Hopefully legal will let us, but I would love to suppress a lot of that information, the blank pages, the administrative information that you walk out of the doctor's office with that's now in the records, the copies of the medical cards. If we can't suppress it, I just want to move it all to a place that's obvious it's at the bottom and you don't need it. There's nothing there for mortality or morbidity review. So we're working on that too. Those are really our big, um, the release rate improvement and the usability is our big charge here this year. And I think you had referenced earlier as well, many of the uh, electronic health records currently, and I'm sure that this will expand as the market matures, but the medical claims data, the, the codes are throughout uh, these EHRs. And, and that's right. something that through optical character recognition or a, a different type of data transmission can go directly into uh, the carrier decision engines for quick assessment. So I, right. I think as that continues to expand, we'll continue to see faster processes and reduction of cycle times as well, correct? Right, right exactly. And, and to further expand on your question about the, where we're headed with EHR, I think right now, a lot of the members and probably client partners in distribution too, are sort of testing out a lot of the different third-party data. A lot of them are using the same five or six pieces of data, which makes sense right now, right? We're, we're trying to figure out what works. We're trying to fill in gaps for the EHR right now. I do think over time, the EHR will replace some of that as the gold standard because we're already seeing how much more robust they've gotten in the last 12 to 18 months. So they're only going to get more so. And it again, if that technology can bring all that information forward, I don't see a world in three years, two to three years, that you're going after five different data sources. I don't think it's going to make sense. I think we're in a test and learn mode. And some of this will get replaced by what the EHR has to offer. I I firmly believe that. I agree 100% and getting somewhat philosophical here. I think that's where we as an industry are are in the process now of retraining the underwriting staffs at the carriers as well as at at the distributor level because it's a different type of data set. The protective value from an actuarial perspective certainly is there, if not more robust. So that the industry needs to know and understand and learn what to do with these new data sources and that right. they, they are reliable. Right. And stuff. some of them, I think, are just like an interim step. And you know what? My whole philosophy about third-party data or medical data, there's probably room for everybody. Every piece of value, every piece of data has value at the right price. And it may be that some of them just shift for different use cases. Like I have this much I have $5 budget, maybe pre-sale or at point of sale. But for a UL with a big premium, I might have a $100 budget for this. So I just think it's all going to like shift and land based on product and premium and where it fits in the life cycle, right? I have a lot of members right now doing forensic or post-issue underwriting. So the underwriting is happening. They don't want to jeopardize cycle time, right? So they get the, the decision out the door. And they are doing some evaluations after issue. 
So there's a space for it there, for EHR there, or, or some of the other data sources, just to make sure the client disclosed everything. It's part of some of the reinsurance treaties. So I challenge people, you know, yes, APS replacement, but I can give you 10 other scenarios of where to use this data. So I think people will evolve because a lot of people will come back and it'll take them a few months and they'll say, hey, can we use it for this? If it's an underwriting purpose, you can use it. Life and DI. It's definitely been a journey. And, you know, one of my former uplines always would say, you know, change is the constant velocity is the variable. And, And definitely the velocity of change over the past few years has been accelerated and I think will continue to accelerate. And, you know, I, very exciting times in, in our industry. And I think that from the producer community, we're here to help however we can navigate these waters of change and very exciting times. And you know, Carol, any last words or comments uh, for the audience as we close our session? No, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to talk about EHR. A phrase you'll hear us say here at MIB is uh, progress versus perfection. If we wait for perfection, we're, we're never going to move forward. And ultimately, this data is going to be in the in your client's hands, right? And your client's going to be the one who owns it and, and moves it forward. So we as an industry have to be ready to work with this data. So even if you don't use it like robustly, get your feet wet. We don't charge anything to search. It just makes sense to become familiar with it now. Thanks again, Carolyn, for the time today. Definitely uh, informative and uh, looking forward to our continued relationship. Absolutely. Happy to help. Thanks for having me. Crump Life Insurance Services, a leading third-party distributor and service provider of insurance and retirement products, is part of Truist Insurance Holdings Incorporated the seventh largest insurance broker in the world. Crump supports the distribution of life insurance, annuities, long-term care, linked benefits, disability, and health products with the industry's premier sales and back office support and technology services. Marketing under the following brands. Crump, Truist Life Insurance Services, Risk Rider, TELUS, and Time. Source, Business Insurance Magazine, using 2019 brokerage revenue generated, 2020 issue. For financial professional use only, not intended for use in solicitation of sales to the public. Not intended to recommend the use of any product or strategy for any particular client or class of clients. For use with non-registered products only, Crump operates under the license of Crump Life Insurance Services Incorporated. Arkansas license number 1001031477. Products and programs offered through Crump are not approved for use in all states. Copyright 2022, Crump Life Insurance Services, Incorporated.